Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts. Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the former left-handed pitcher who was the anchor of the 1986 New York Mets. He served as a pitching coach for the Mets' single-A-level Brooklyn Cyclones as well, the double-A Binghamton Mets in 2005. He was named the pitching coach for the Can-Am League's Worcester Tornadoes under Worcester manager and his former battery mate Rich Gedman, helping the team to win the Can-Am championship in its first year. After the 2007 season, he left the coaching staff to join the front office. In 2009, he joined CNY... SNY as a pregame and postgame studio analyst for the New York Mets broadcast through the 2014 season. We do miss him. We love Nelson Figueroa, I will say that, but we do miss his insight on the postgame. It is a pleasure to welcome the man who was the winning pitcher in the longest professional baseball game in baseball history, as well as the pivotal Game 3 of the 1986 World Series, the one and only Bobby O. Bob Ojeda. Welcome, Bobby. Oh, my gosh. Thank you very much. Yeah, glad to be here with you guys. It's absolutely our pleasure. Before we talk about the current Mets, we want to talk a little bit about your career. You attended uh-huh. Redwood High School and the College of the Sequoias in California. After you graduated, you were actually working as a landscaper for your brother-in-law. And Larry <laughs> Flynn, a Red Sox scout who remembered you from Babe Ruth days, advised the Red Sox to sign you. You're signed as an undrafted free agent by the Red Sox. What do you mm-hmm. think Larry saw in you that others didn't? Uh, I think he saw a hunger. I really do. Boy, you did your homework. Um, he was he was a, just an old school cigar smoking, just you know, one of those guys who was a bird dog, not a real scout. So he recommended me to a scout, and uh, they went for it. You know, I got five hundred bucks a ticket to Elmira. I bought a suit, my parents' dinner, a pair of shoes, and that was it for that. But I was hungry, and I wanted to make it, and uh, I was just going to do my best to make it. He saw that, and he'd known me since I was a kid, and I actually hit of his guys one time in a row uh, in a Babe Ruth game, so he hated me briefly, but then uh, then he, he just admired my style and my and uh, the way I was hungry to make it to the big leagues, or try to make it to the big leagues. I, I, you know, I didn't know I was going to make it. But, no, it was a great opportunity, and I made the most of it. You mentioned Elmira, which is yeah. one of AJ's favorite. Well, because, because of beautiful Dunfield. Did you play in beautiful Dunfield? You bet I did. You bet I. I got off my uh, my flight from wherever uh, I connected through because I came from a small town in California, and I pulled up to that to that ballpark, and it was beautiful to me because it was big and, and you know I know it was old and a little beat, but I'm like, man, I'm a pro baseball player, and and this is where I get to work, and uh, I know you know a little rough around the edges, but I was glad to be there. I really was. It was a WPA project, by the way. That's how old the ballpark yeah, was. Unbelievable. The uh, Elmira <laughs> Pioneers in the short season yeah. New York Penn League. You went one and six with a four point one ERA. But during the postseason instructional league, you met Red Sox pitching coach Johnny Padres. And for our long our younger listeners or audience, Johnny Padres notched one hundred and thirty six wins as a Dodger, which interestingly enough, as of two thousand seventeen, still places him in the top yeah. ten in franchise history. The Dodgers we're talking about. Top ten in, in you know in a, a, a team that's storied in its pitching history. Um, you know, after his playing days, Padres became a pitching coach with the Padres, Red Sox, Twins, and Phillies. Two of his students have been on our show, Kurt Schilling and, and Frank Viola, and they talked about how much he meant to their careers. What did Johnny Padres mean to your career? 
he was instrumental in me making it. He really was. I would, like he said, I was one in six, whatever it was, with a terrible ERA. I was, you know, every young guy who signs, when you get there, and there's a bunch of other young guys, everybody wants to be the big bad dude throwing the hardest. So everybody tries to throw it through a wall. I did the same thing, failed miserably. Johnny got a hold of me, and Johnny Padres had an awesome curveball. He had so much guts and heart, too, and that got through. Um, and he taught me my curveball, taught me my changeup, and he saw something in me as well. He was no nonsense. He a big old boiler, chain-smoking camels. And uh, I just related to him, and, and what he said made sense to me. Plus, he was a lefty, you know, crafty lefty. And he taught me how to pitch. He made me understand pitching is not throwing. And, and uh, you know, a year and a half after that, I was in the big it's interesting. We're seeing a little pattern here. It seems like chain-smoking guys love wow. you. <laughs> uh, you know, as you mentioned, whatever Padres taught you, it helped. In, in, 17, in 1979, you go 15-7, and 2.43 ERA for the Class A Winter Haven uh, of the Florida State League, earning you a two-level promotion to AAA Pawtucket in the International League. You look at that roster compared to Winter Haven. Gedman, Boggs, Bruce Hurst, and for 12 games, John Tudor pitched there as well. What are the difficulties of making that jump? For, you know, today guys don't even go to the minors. A lot of guys, but what were the difficulties going from A to AAA? It's emotional first and foremost because you begin to feel like you don't belong. You don't. You begin to question your ability. You begin to question. They're so much better. They're older. They're a couple years older because I was still pretty young. Uh, they've been around. These guys are so good, so smart. Uh, so you're intimidated before you even play. Uh, and then you get out there and you start to play and you start to make adjustments. You start to evolve and you sort of overcome that feeling of I'm not worthy. And it, then it manifests itself in I'm better than you. You talk yourself into that. And then that usually will help you succeed at least to the best level you can. Sort of you get out of your own way. You stop creating a monster that really doesn't exist. We're talking with 1986 New York Met World Champion Bob O'Heater. You're 4-5 and five with a 3.39 ERA when on July 11th you're called up to the Red Sox. And on Sunday, July 13th, 1980, manager Don Zimmer pencils you in as a starter against the Detroit Tigers. Tell us what you remember most about taking that walk out to the mound for the first time as a major leaguer. Honest to goodness, and I'm not making this up. Uh, I warm up in the bullpen. I'm at Fenway Park, of all places. I'm like, are you kidding me here? There's this incredible disbelief in my mind where I am. I can't believe it. I got to the ballpark. I beat the clubhouse guy to the ballpark. (laughs) And uh, he was a crusty old dude, and he's like, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm pitching today. My name's so-and-so. And And he goes, okay, whatever. You know, he's just a crusty old guy. He was, I love him. So I go out, I warm up. I go into the dugout. They play the song. Um, and then Sherm, I forgot his name, Sherm who was the announcer, and he, you know, here comes the Red Sox, and I go out of the dugout, and I start walking towards the mound in Fenway Park, and I'm thinking, I'm going to get tackled by security, and they're going to go, kid, get off the field, and I'm pitching, I'm pitching that day, and I'm like, you talk about feeling so overwhelmed, I was completely overwhelmed and intimidated, and I I did subsequently obviously failed after that because I just couldn't find my feet, which was fine. Failure, you learn a lot in failure. But I was so scared. When I walked to the mound, I thought I was going to get tackled. But the one other thing I remember is my first pitch in the big leagues was a strike right down the middle. Mm. So how how intimidating, as a left-handed pitcher, how intimidating is that left field wall? You're, You're working first start, major leagues, and you're a left-handed pitcher, you have to deal with that wall. 
Uh, it's very intimidating because it is on top of you. It's imposing. Yeah. It's in your face, and you understand that uh, mistakes left out over the plate, it's not going to take anything. Heck, I could almost hit one out of there to get, to get it to go off the wall or in the net back in the day of the net. Uh, but what it taught me and what I learned was you've got to pitch inside. And I threw around 88 to 90, maybe 91. I had to dial it. I could throw harder, but I couldn't last. So I had to dial it back so my arm would hold up. So that's the level I pitched at, but I lived inside. I went inside with a four-seamer all time to those big righties, and then I'd go with a two-seamer or, or change it away, and I'd get that off the end of the bat. they just miss it, and it's a lazy fly ball to deep right field or short right field or even pull it, but off the end of the bat, it doesn't go in the net. So it taught me, and actually there were three lefties in the rotation there for a while. It was me, Hursty, and John Tudor. Um, and we learned from each other. We'd watch each other how we go about getting the, the guys out, and then we debrief each other after these games. So we all learned how to use our fastballs. Nobody was incredibly fast, but we all learned how to pitch inside and stay inside and make them just get off of the plate. Now, you finished that season back at Pawtucket, and you start the following season at Pawtucket. And as we said in the Open, you're involved in, in a very unusual way in one of baseball's most historic games, the record 33-inning marathon between Pawtucket and Rochester that began on the evening of Saturday, April 18th and resumed on June 23rd. Can you tell us what you remember about the April 18th part of the game and how you came to be the winning pitcher in one of the longest, in the longest professional baseball game ever? Well, I've always had a little kind of Forrest Gump thing in me where I'm always in the, this weird place at this weird time and it becomes an epic thing. So I'm at the ballpark. I'm pitching the next day. So when you pitch the next day in the minor leagues or even in the big leagues, you get to go home early, get your rest. Um, so I'm at the game. It goes into extras. Joe Morgan was my manager, the Boston Red Sox manager, Joe Morgan. Uh, he said, go ahead, take it to the house, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Start tomorrow, so go ahead. So I go home, I get a phone call the next day from one of my teammates, said, you know what happened? I said, nope, and he explains it to me. <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding me? Now, uh, I find out I went to 32 innings, and that team, the Rochester team, didn't come back into town for a few weeks. The Major League strike was going on at the time. So there was a lot of interest, and they, they built uh, this section in the stands for the media. It was really exciting time for everybody. And then, as fate would have it, my day to pitch was the day the game resumed. Um, so I get the ball, and I go out there, I throw 13 pitches, I come in, we score the run, game's over, and uh, I got the W, but I only threw 13 pitches, so I went in and talked to Joe Morgan. I said, Joe, let me start the real game, because it was that game, the completion of that, and then we had another game. And I said, let me turn the second game. He's like, he's like, yeah, maybe. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, you're going to the big leagues as soon as the strike's over. If you go out there right now and get hurt, they're going to have my head. So I didn't get to start the second game because I was thinking I'm going to snake two W's in one day. <laughs> didn't happen, but I got the one, the big one, and it was just fate. You know, it was fate that I got it. My favorite part of that entire game is I think at the end of the game, there's something like 123 people still left in the stands at, in 3.30 in the morning, and they gave them season tickets. You know, oh, wow. For, their next for staying the whole game. For staying yeah. the whole game. Oh, my God. Freezing cold. Yeah, yeah. I they, mean, they, they freezing was, cold. Right. It was supposedly fires to keep people warm in, in the stands. It's crazy. After well, the guys, the guys lit bats in the bullpen right. and burned them in a trash can. Yeah. It, it, there's a, a great book about that game, an amazing game. After six seasons with the Red Sox, you're part of an eight-player trade that sent you to the Mets and Calvin Giraldi the Red Sox. You joined a pitching staff that included Dwight Gooden, Ron Darling, Sid Fernandez, and Bruce Barani, by the way. 
What mm-hmm. did having Dwight Gooden, Ron Darling, and Sid Fernandez in a rotation mean to you as a pitcher? When I first got traded over, absolutely nothing. I knew nothing about the New York Mets. I mean absolutely nothing. I'm one of those one-trick ponies. It's my world, and I'm in my world, and that's all I care about. So I knew the American League. I knew you know, my teammates were in Boston, knew nothing about the National League or the New York Mets. New York Mets. But when I got over there and went through spring training with these guys as the season starts, you know, I start to figure it out. These guys are pretty good. Uh, Doc was legendary. Um, he was just epic. What a gentleman. He's still, we're still good friends to this day. Uh, Doc was amazing. Doc was different than anybody else. Doc was not like – and there was no one could compare it to Doc. He was in a different league by himself, and he handled it. He, he, he acted like just one of the guys, but he wasn't. I was a, a little bit older than them. I was a couple years older, been in the league longer, and I was just so in awe of Dwight. Um, the other guys were just filler like me, and I looked at myself. I'm just filling in here. We're the rest of the band. And, uh, you know, the season worked out great. It was just a, a monster of a team. We had pitching. We had defense. We had offense. And we had an attitude that, you know, would fill a stadium. Yeah, books have been written about that. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, AJ and I, over the course of 10 years now, going on 11 yeah. years, um, have had four, you, you're number 14 from that team that's appeared on our show. Um, and the, our favorite question always is going back to game six of the 1986 World but Series. The where most, were you when? The most yeah. memorable game oh. in New York Mets history by far. You're the starter of that game. Walk us through where you are in the 10th inning as that you know, game unfolds and when you, know, you win that game, setting up the Game 7. Well, you're, you're right. I started that game, biggest, you know, second biggest game of my life at that time. It was actually a tie because Game 3 was huge and Game 6 was like it's on the line. Um, I loved it. I thrived on that pressure. Uh, it made me extremely uh, – I had so much anxiety always and – it forced me to talk myself down, to calm myself down. So I pitched the innings. My arm's ready to fall off. Davey takes me on after five. I think the score is tied 2-2. He brings in Aguilera. I'm in the – I'm now – I go in. I sit in the dugout for an inning or two. Then I go in. I got to ice my arm and do all that stuff. So I'm watching the game on the TV in the locker room, um, and I take off my uniform. I'm in a towel. So I'm watching the game. Uh, Keith is over in, in Davey's office having a smoke, watching the game. I'm sitting by my locker just kind of – you know, Aggie came in and coughed it up. So I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, we're about to lose the World Series. Um, which, at that point, me and all of my teammates felt we accomplished nothing. Nothing. Second place meant nothing to us. Uh, we knew we, we had to win the whole thing or we're epic failures. So I'm in there. I'm watching the thing on the TV, and, and I'm sitting in my locker. I'm sitting there in a towel. And I, I wait to go in the shower, though, because all of a sudden yeah, I'm watching. I'm like, I might as well watch the end of this thing. And then the hits start, the hits start, the hits start. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I tighten the towel up a little bit, throw my shower shoes on, and run down the tunnel, and I'm sticking my head out of the dugout. There's no pictures of it, but I was sticking my head out of the dugout, out of the tunnel, to watch this thing happen. And uh, so that I was in the corner of the dugout watching the thing finally unfold, and we got the W, and it was just crazy. I remember running up the tunnel with all my teammates and, uh, it was just uh, what a feeling because at that point we knew Game Seven was in the bag. Game Seven we'd won no matter what. I mean, we were a better team anyway, but we almost choked. We almost choked it up and we didn't. We pulled it back. So it was a, just a tremendous feeling to go in there and shower up with the boys and you know can't wait to get to the yard. Naturally, it rained the next day. We had to wait a little bit, but that one was in the books. 
by far the most incredible game I've ever attended. And I've been to yeah. all the Met championships, yeah. but this is especially meaningful for me because I've told this story a number of times on the air is my father had this uncanny knack of knowing when a game was over and leave early. And yeah. he did that at a Yankee game, the one that Chris Chambliss won that game. Right. Right? So he wanted to <laughs> so leave yeah. this game. And, and the Yankee game didn't bother me as much because I'm, I'm a Met fan, but it, it, it yeah. still bothered me to the right. point yeah. where he said, let's go, this game's over, you don't want to see the Red Sox celebrate. I said, we're not losing this game, we're not leaving. He <laughs> oh goes, and then there's God. two outs. Really? That's awesome. Yeah, and then wait, there's two outs. He goes, come on, let's go. I said, we're not losing this game. I am not leaving. And then when we won, I said, I turned to him and goes, all right, that's because of Chris Shambliss. We're still here and we saw this. <laughs> um, that is a great story. Yeah, oh, the, my God. Yeah, we had season tickets, third base side, absolutely the most memorable game. And I've seen the Rangers win the Stanley Cup, but you know the two of them are, are right side by side in my most vivid memories. Lastly, before we turn our attention to the current Mets, I remember an mm-hmm. article that you wrote in the New York Times, and I went back and looked mm-hmm. at it. And um, there are some quotes from it. Um, and it, you said, for more than three decades, whether in Little League or the Minor Leagues or Fenway Park in Boston, there was pain. Sharp or dull in the elbow or the shoulder. Throwing fastballs as a kid or junk as a lefty, trying to stay in the big league, it all led to pain. It would be dulled by aspirin or beer or more powerful cocktails of medicine and booze, but it would never leave. Pitching is all-encompassing motion. The act itself is sort of violent and completely unnatural. I think most pitchers certainly feel a level of pain. So a couple of questions here. As a pitcher, you know, we, we've seen over the years guys like Gibson, Seaver, Carlton very rarely miss a start. Juan Marichal, who had the most unorthodox you know, motion of any pitcher. And those guys consistently were, were pitching complete games. Marichal pitched 15 innings. Louis Tiant's another Tiant. one, weird motion yeah. pitch. So what yeah. happened? What happened from 1969 through 72, 73, and then from 73 on where we're always hearing of, of pitchers you know, breaking down, and now their they're, uh, quality start is six innings. They don't throw complete games anymore. What happened? Is it because the, the hitters got bigger, better, or, or because now we've got the jugs gun? What happened that there's such a rash of pitching injuries now? Well, you make some very good points, but I do believe that you know, guys overthrowing – I do believe guys pitching too much at a young age. Nowadays, arm injuries are, are crazy. <laughs> you got, you got eight-year-old kids with a pitching coach. I think uh, we used to learn how to throw and then learn how to pitch. Nowadays, and it started when, when you know, the game started exploding and got a little more financially uh, advantageous to play, um, everybody wanted to coach pitching. Everybody wanted to create all these pitchers. So they got away from their natural deliveries and sort of tried to turn these kids all into robots. And when you're doing something unnatural to your body, because our bodies are different, my body's different than yours, I'm going to throw a little bit different than you. And when you try to pigeonhole young kids to throw a certain way, it's a matter of time for that arm blows out. Back in the day, you just threw. You threw rocks against the wall, you threw tennis balls, and you, you found your own rhythm, you found your own timing. And then from that, you would begin to pitch. Pitching is refined throwing. But you have to walk before you run. You have to throw before you pitch, and I think that's gotten backwards. Another thing, the surgeries today are remarkable. Back when the guys you mentioned played, you got a Tommy John, you were done. You missed a couple starts, you were done. They couldn't repair you like they do now. Now you can blow out your own. There's high school kids blowing out you know, ulnar nerves and tendons and all these things. They're rebuilt better. They still get scholarships. They still get signed. 
that didn't used to happen. It used to be a death sentence. And nowadays, they can fix you, and you can come back almost better than before. Well, Let me just interrupt it. for one second. Mm. Sorry, mm-hmm. Mark. Kansas just beat Duke 85-81. I'm happy oh. for you. Uh, not really. Well, now I've got three, <laughs> I, I got, got three of my four teams in the final four in the pool, and nobody oh nobody has Loyola as the fourth team. No. Especially not that radio host that uh, kind of dropped the F-bomb Sorry, on, Bob, on the sister. Sorry, Bob, just interrupt for a second. Yeah. No, no, no. That's big. That's, that's huge. I can't wait for the final final games. You know, so. it's also interesting you, you mentioned about how guys get Tommy John. Now, we have kids now that you read about that are going in high school after their senior year, going for elective Tommy John surgery right. because uh, they, they, they throw harder. Yeah. You mentioned how you had to cope and get through that pain. We had um, Bill Dennehy on, yeah, who right. who talked, who was high, uh, a bigger prospect than Tom Seaver, believe yeah. it or not, on that 1967 rookie card. And he talked about how many cortisone shots that eventually yeah. led to uh-huh. blindness from him. Yeah. Um, how did you deal with that pain, and and what was the recovery time and, and how much pain did you actually pitch through? Okay, I'll tell you this. Here, this is a great question, too, because it varied. It was always there to a certain degree. Some days it's a, you, you've been in the hospital, you see that little face on your pain level, <laughs> 1 to 10. I love that little thing. I saw it on a show. I was nice. But some days it's a 10, some days it's an 8, some days it's a 7, some days it's a 3. The reality is, and I know everybody's you know crazy about pitch counts, I promise you, some days I throw 110 pitches, it feels like 60. Other days I throw 60 pitches, it feels like 350. You have to be able to spot when your pitcher is just off, his timing is slightly off, his rhythm is slightly off. Those are the expensive pitches. Those are the ones that really hurt. And when I would throw a pitch that would really bite me, I misfired, front shoulder went a little soon or whatever, lower half went early, whatever. Something went wrong in the timing. I would get the equivalent of a hot ice pick jammed right in my elbow. And I'd have to step off the mound, act like I'm rubbing the ball up. I would stop and tie my shoe. Meanwhile, what I'm doing is buying a little time for that thing to quiet down. And inevitably, I'd follow it up with a couple change-up because if I went a little softer, it didn't hurt as bad. I might flip a little curveball in there, but I wasn't going to go with a four-seamer inside after that. So it would bite you at certain times. And once that bite would happen, the remainder of that game was a struggle. So it makes you well aware. It's a great reminder to make sure your your fundamental in your delivery is sound. You're not flying open. You're not firing too early. You have to keep it. You have to keep it in sync because when it bites you, it's like okay, I ain't doing that again. Um, and then you just deal with it. it. Just becomes something that you deal with. And I'll tell you, a lot of pitchers do. Classic example today is Tanaka. How many years have they been saying this guy's arm's gonna fall off? He'll never make it through the year. And I mean, coming from guys like John Schmaltz. What's he do? He keeps going out there. Why? I'll tell you one thing. His arm probably bothers him, but he's tough. He, that sometimes the pain can drive a guy to succeed. Uh, some guys embrace the pain, uh, and some guys don't, and that's just the way life is. No good or, or, or wrong with either way. It's just how you're wired, and I happen to sort of embrace the pain. I sort of liked it because it made me mad, and I like to pitch internally mad. Uh, and and use my brain to pitch because my body was not up to snuff most of the time. So you mentioned how you had to become more of a pitcher and not a thrower, and I think in today's baseball there's a lot of emphasis on you know guys just making it to the league just on their arm and throwing you know 95 yes. plus in the bullpen. So let's say you're a pitching coach. Uh, how was. would you, yeah, <laughs> yeah? Let's say yeah. you're building you know a prototype pitcher and he's young and you want him to you know get to the league but also be a pitcher. What kind of pitches are you having him throw? 
I'm having him, first of all, find his, I got to learn his delivery. I got to see his delivery, what's happening there. Some guys, uh, once his delivery is consistent, I can tell you, look, you're gonna, this kid's going to be better off with a slider. He's going to be better off with a cutter. He's going to have a great curveball with his delivery. He's going to have an awesome two-seamer, four-seamer. He's going to be able to locate better. So it all comes off of what I see in a kid, what I want to introduce to him. And I'm one of those people, I think the worst thing you do is fill a guy's head with stuff and then try to take it out. As a pitching coach, I spent most of my time trying to take things out that have been put in their heads. Because pitching, once, once I'm out there pitching, I can't be thinking about my arm angle or my knee angle or my toe angle. I just got to compete. So I, I find what they do right. I try to give them pitches and teach them how to pitch, when and how to use them, how to read swings, read takes, uh, read foul balls. When a guy fouls it this way, he's doing this. Uh, so all the nuance of, of the game, you know, not thinking about a delivery, but rather competing, playing the game. So I would teach my guys that, to read what's going on. Mm-hmm. And any given day, you're going to feel different. And on that day, you've got to find out what your out pitch is that day. Because most days, it might be your fastball, your sinker, your four-seamer, your hammer, your slider. I don't know. Whatever it is. But on this day, it ain't going to work. So the sooner that game happens in that game, the sooner I find out where i got to go to get this out, the better. I can survive those first couple, three innings when it's like, oh, my gosh, i got to go to plan B or C. So I would teach my guys also have plan B, have plan C, because I promise you, 30 starts, 10 will feel great, 10 are going to feel medium, and 10, you're going to wish you became a forest ranger. You know, Mark got at some of this, but one of the big differences, you took all that starting pitching and coaching starting pitchers. One of the biggest differences with starting pitchers only going for five innings, and that's enough, a quality start is five innings. And mm-hmm. somebody's now is a sixth-inning pitcher and a seventh-inning pitcher, an eighth-inning pitcher. How different is it to, to coach you know, players saying, okay, you're going to be the fifth inning pitcher who comes in the seventh inning. Oh, that's not my inning. Right, right. I, I, in, in reality, I believe baseball is a big circle. The more it changes, the more it always comes back. It's just a big – what was in vogue big time was pitch counts. Remember that? It was crazy pitch counts. They sort of come off of that, but they somehow stuck with making the game shorter for the starter. Uh, I thought they went a little crazy with the sixth inning, as you said, seventh inning. We're using three pitchers to get through one inning. I think it's a World Series, right? Yeah, Yeah, I I watched the World Series this year. I, I, you know, I watch a lot. Um, And when I saw so many starting pitchers going out to the bullpen with their spikes on to work long relief, I think a light bulb went on in a lot of people's minds on the field. It's like, wait a minute, what happened to the long guy? What happened to my starter? Gives me four. He's not doing very good. He's stinking up the place. I got to get him out of there. Well, I go to one of my, I, I go to my long guy. Should have two long guys in the bullpen. And on that long day, i got to get three or four out of this guy, and then I can rest the other guy. So I think there's an evolution coming back. More things change, more things stay the same. I think you're going to start seeing more of that this year. I think you're going to see guys come out of the pen and give you three or four, and, and maybe they're going to back away from this overthinking. The guy strikes out two guys, and they, go, they pull him out to bring somebody else in because he's a better matchup. I think, uh, I think we're sort of seeing the reality of too much analytics uh, on, on too much matchups is a bad thing. Too much. 
we're talking with Bob Ojeda. I want to piggyback on Ryan's question about pitching coach and what you teach them. There's mm-hmm. one thing that I wanted to know. You know, now all of a sudden, you know, the hitters are into this whole launch angle, and it's all about the home run. Um, the hitters don't look to go the other way anymore. You know, because you know, even when there are shifts, as a pitcher, if batters are all about the launch angle, are we going to see guys now trying to own the in the inside of the plate? Because a, you can't get down and extend underneath and, and drive the ball, and more pitches at the letters if the umpires start calling that. You know, strike again to take away that launch angle because if you're throwing it at the letters, you can't elevate. Right, right, right. You're you're going to definitely swing under and hit the bottom most of the time with that lift swing. But what you're seeing is just exactly what's been preached for the past few years. Strikeouts are going to the moon. Right, going to the moon. Guys are okay striking out home runs. Last year, more home runs were hit in MLB than. Ever before, I think a third uh, of baseball plays last year totally, were strikeouts, I, I, home runs, or, or walks. Right. Yeah, you, they go, yeah, it's, yeah, it's you know. But I also believe this, and I was there when the steroids started coming in. It actually came from our locker room, if you remember, <laughs> uh, Kurt Romanowski back in the day. Um, I also believe steroids are in the game. I, I, it's just too much money, uh, and they're too sophisticated nowadays. There's a way to beat the, the system. There is. There just is. They can beat the test. And I think you're seeing steroids affect the home runs, along with this swing angle. And all that. I do believe that. But I think the juice is back in the game, I, and I, I 100% believe that. Because here we go with, again with the, art, with the argument, oh, the balls are juiced. Well, I've seen that movie before, <laughs> back when the steroids came in. It's like, oh, the balls are juiced. It ain't the ball, boys. It's the men. <laughs> well, let's turn our attention in the next few minutes to this uh, New York Mets team. Um, as a former pitcher, as well as a pitching coach, what do you think it will mean to the Mets pitching staff to have a manager who was a pitching coach prior to being a manager? It can be very helpful. I, you know, he, I think he said a lot of good things. You know, I think he said a lot of good things to these guys. Um, I think he, because of his record in the big leagues of having success, I think he gets it that you don't bring pitchers to the major league to develop them, okay? You bring them to the big leagues because they've earned it. They've had success at the minor league levels. They've earned their shot. Now what I want to see is this kid evolve. And I think, I think Callaway is doing He's looking for guys. He's not like, hey, you're not coming here to figure it out. You're coming here to evolve, learn how to get big leaguers out. But you're not coming here to develop. And I think the Mets, unfortunately, have been stuck in a development mentality for quite a few years uh, of late and they bring guys up and with the thought of okay we're going to develop them into a big league I, I think that's really hurt the ball club and I, I think what's happened now with the new coaches in there um, it's now more of a question of hey you've earned your right to be here get somebody out if you don't get somebody out well we're going to go to the next guy and I think that's a great message to send to everybody you're not coming to the big leagues to develop you're coming here to earn it the way they've handled uh, I thought Wheeler was good. It was tough. I thought they said a little too many harsh things publicly, but I think the message was great. Go down, figure it out, get some people out, and come back. We'll bring you back. But you're not coming back till you get people out. You're not going to practice in the big leagues. We, we're here to win ball games. We're here to win rings. We're not here to watch you develop. No way. It's funny you said that because we kind of opened our baseball yeah. segment with that exact you know concept, and, and I think also the fact you know having Gary D. Sarcina and Ruben Amaro Jr. as part of a staff, two guys that have spent time in front offices, whether it be in the minor league level or the major league level as GMs, 
also helps on the player evaluation side. And I think what Dave Island said, I agree with you, was harsh, but it, it it's the anti-Terry. And we kind of said that, that Terry would have, you know, it would have been kept in inside the room and, you know, it would have been sugar-coated. Um, I remember Terry, one of the things that stuck with me, Terry told me, was poor defense makes great pitching ordinary. And there's the old baseball adage that you want to build your baseball team solid you know, defense up the middle. So Darno Plowicki behind the dish, Cabrera and Rosario at second and shortstop, Conforto in center. Do you, be, do you believe that is solid enough up the middle defensively? I, I think it's solid. I don't think it's above level by any stretch. I think when, I think when you're building your team's success around pitching, man, a close second better be solid defense, above average defense. Uh, most of the places, at least consistent, solid defense. I think sometimes the Mets try too many people out at new positions. Uh, I don't think that's a good idea because if you're on the mound, uh, it doesn't take much to go from 82 wins to 88 wins. It doesn't take much. So if we're giving up five, six games a year due to defense, uh, even though my pitching is solid, uh, we're going home, boys. We're not going to the postseason in October, and I think – you know, there's three facets to the game, and this isn't, I'm not Socrates, there's three facets. Baseball, it's not complicated. There's pitching, there's defense, and there's offense. I believe you have to have two of the three. They, they, they don't have to be the best. We don't have to have the best pitching staff. We don't. And if that's all you have, you're not going to go postseason. We don't, have the best, we don't have to have the best offense. If that's all we got, we're not going postseason. But you have to have two of the three, pitching, defense, offense. Pick any two of those three that are solid and consistent, and i got a ball club that's got a chance to go postseason. If you try to live and die with one aspect of that, you're going nowhere. And I think you, know, you put too much on your pitching staff and then you feed them a, a, a medium to poor defense, that's not a good recipe. And then you've got inconsistent offense. So I just believe you have to have two of the three. You've got two of the three. You are going to be looking for the roses every single year. You may not get there. But I think you're going to be a consistent, solid ball club. I look, over, I look at St. Louis Cardinals. They manage to yeah. do that every year. They just do. And they, I think that's their concept. You know, over the years, I had some disagreements with Terry. The most public one was about Wilma Flores. You looked at how A.J. Hinch utilized Marwan Gonzalez. And to me, I say, why don't the Mets do that with Wilma Flores? I know that Mickey Calloway has been speaking a lot about you know, Wilmer now. Do you think that if Wilmer can get to that 500 at-bat plateau, he can put up numbers similar to Gonzalez? And do you think he can be that role for the Mets? I do, and I think what's going to what the only thing that's standing in the way of that is throwing this kid in different positions that he can't play. Because rare is the bird who can play mediocre to poor defense and then concentrate on his hitting. It gets in their head. He's not very athletic, and this kid should not have grass under his feet. This kid should be on the dirt somewhere. <laughs> I put him in first base, and I'd get him all those at bats, and I wouldn't talk to him all year. And at the end of the year, he hits 280. He hits 38 home runs. He knocks in like 94, and everybody's happy. I, some guys are built to play different positions. Some guys aren't. And I think this kid is much more of a hitter than a defender, and I'd rather have him hitting the ball than costing me runs in the outfield or you know, at a position like third base or shortstop where he really doesn't belong. Lastly, you know, you pitched in a, a tremendous pitching staff. This Met team, you know, for years and years we've talked about these guys coming here and being, you know, going through the rotation once, yeah. you know, healthy. Um, do you think it matters, you know, whatever five, you know, whatever five eventually play out, whether it's going to be Lugo, Vargas, you know, Wheeler comes back, 
do you think there's an optimal way of setting them up, you know, one through five? And, and uh, what would it be? Who follows who, that type of yeah. thing? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I totally believe that's a great idea. You don't want similar styles going back to back. I think DeGrom and, DeGrom and Harvey are very similar. I would split those guys up. Uh, Lugo's the new kid. He's the wild card. I throw him in there. He's got that curveball. Now, they're going to start setting all over that curveball later. But right now, you've got a curveball guy and follow him up with Syndergaard. Look out below. Syndergaard's going to take those 300 miles an hour. So you've got to balance your rotation to the styles. Uh, rather than left-right, I'd rather, I'd rather counterbalance my guys to their styles because you go into somewhere for a three- or four-game set, and the other team looks at that, their, their rotation like, oh, my gosh, we got this today, entirely different style tomorrow, entirely different style the next day. I mean, we've got a hand school. We've got to adjust each and every day. You've got to set apart the guys who are similar in their, in their repertoire. Like I said before, we love Nelson Figueroa. Figgy's one of our favorites, but we miss you as well. But Very now... Good. Now, for those of you that have been missing Bobby O, you can get your fix on the internet, right? You can catch right. uh, where where can we catch Bobby O's change of pace? Uh, Bob, go to bobbyo.com and you will find my podcast. My daughter is dragged me into the 21st century with this podcast. I'm loving it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I I really enjoy, you know, watching the game, analyzing the game, talking about the game. Um, and it's just a nice way for me to do it. And even when I was doing the television show, they never, ever, ever hassled me about what I would say, ever. They were great to me. Uh, and this is sort of an extension of that, except I don't have to shave. <laughs> we love it, Bobby. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time tonight. You know, I, again, we've, we've talked about you a lot, and it, it's finally, you know, it took to number 14 of that team to get you on, but uh, it was great having you tonight. We really appreciate uh. it. Oh, you got it, Mark and AJ. It's great to, great to spend time with you. We'll speak to you later on during the season, all right? Okay, you got it. You got it. Bobby Ojeda, 1986 New York Mets world champion.